0: Welcome to a Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to Redemption'sHill.com. It's good to be here with you. Like we just said, we got a lot of people sick and a lot of people gone, but it is good to be here in the house of the Lord uh, with you. After finishing our series over Nehemiah a couple weeks ago, we decided to take some time to look at the vision of Redemption's Hill Church. Uh, together, in in church planter language, it's all about what kind of vision we want and what what kind of vision we're trying to live out. You may think of this as our our mission, our goal, our desire, our our aim. No matter really what terminology you use for that, we're kind of asking the question of of why? Why do we exist? So we can kind of hone that in and make sure we're walking towards the reason that we exist. Uh, together, So in the first Identity and Vision message last week, we kind of dove into our core text from First Thessalonians. That's online if you want to listen to that. Now we're going to move into the DNA elements of our vision uh, for the church. And we call these things DNA because these three elements that we'll look at over the next couple of weeks, we want them to be embedded in literally everything that we do. We want you to be able to look and identify anything that we spend time on, uh, effort in, energy in. We want you to be able to look and identify where one of the core DNA elements of our church are found there because we want to kind of hone what we're doing because these are the three important things that we want to be about really at all time. So in, in realm of kind of thinking about that, Many people love to have a nice, neat, tidy mission statement for a church. And if you know anything about me, that was really hard for me, like the cynical side when we planted the church when people asked for that. But but apparently you're supposed to come up with one of those. So uh, some people kind of have one that says, love God, love people, serve the city. That's fine. It's thoroughly biblical. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, other people uh, really just like to say, hey, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, that's my vision. Jesus gave it to us. We're supposed to obey it. I'm like, yeah, that's that's probably really solid too. Uh, We've landed on this. We exist to glorify God through lives changed by the gospel, right? And those words are really intentional and really on purpose. We exist to glorify God. As a church, we exist to glorify God through lives changed by the gospel. Notice, not changed by morality or effort or any other thing. Uh, It's changed only by the gospel of God. That's why we exist. That's what we want to to see happen in us and and through us. Uh, We desire to see pockets of transformed lives. No matter if God brings us 50, 80, or several hundred people, we desire to see pockets of transformed lives, living out faithful obedience to Jesus through the city for the glory of God because of the gospel of God. That's what we want. That's our aim. That's our pursuit. That is our, our touchdown. That is our goal, which is great, I think, but uh, when you have that kind of missional statement and that big kind of grandiose idea that you want to accomplish, we have to transition that kind of missional statement from words on a screen or, or a nifty slide on, on a web page into an actual plan. That's where this kind of DNA stuff comes. The DNA of our church is not only what we want to be known for, it's the plan for how we will walk towards our mission for how we will glorify God through lives changed by the gospel. The answer to that, the the how behind the the why we exist is through these DNA elements, which are gospel message, gospel community, and gospel mission. Gospel all over that, if you didn't notice. This week, we're going to cover the first one, gospel message. It is the hinge pin uh, to, to which everything rests upon. Without it, Everything is an absolute mess. The reason the gospel is at the, the center, it is the, the hinge pin, is because there's no other way, there is no other name, and there's no other plan that transforms broken lives into new creations. The gospel is the only thing. No matter how many things the world screams that there are, there's only one thing. That's what we believe. Nothing can wash away the sin that we are so deeply entangled in except for the gospel. And here this other news for your mind, and maybe if you have a condemning heart towards yourself, nothing else can can silence your fear, your, your shame, your brokenness, maybe, maybe your self-loathing, some of those things that just kind of wrestle in your mind. Nothing else can silence that but the gospel. It is the gospel that speaks into every single struggle, every single brokenness. It is only the gospel, the gospel of God that does this. It's the gospel that saves, it redeems, and it restores humanity, and it is only the gospel that universally applies to all no matter who you are what you 've done or where you're from. that means the gospel is is relevant and can save the murderer and the moralist like you, you, have to, you have to understand the spectrum if you have murdered the gospel can can save you if you're a moralist man look at all the good stuff that I've done look at my resume look at all the look at all the great stuff I was born in church the gospel can still save you there's no other person or no other thing that can save all people besides the gospel. Nobody is too far gone and nobody is too good to not need it. It applies to all. The gospel is because of that for everyone at every moment of every day. We want to Kind of stand on that all the time. So we want to make sure if the gospel does all of those things, that's why it's a DNA element is we want it to be about everything that we do. You want to see that. If it's the only way for transformation to come, then why would we not put it in literally everything that we do? So we do put it in everything we do. Here's the rub, though. Before we get into what exactly the gospel is, our world does not like the idea of a universal truth. It's, it's not a fond proposition right now. It's offensive to some that there would be this universal thing that applies to all. It's arrogant to others, right? This isn't stuff that you don't know. And then it's ignorant to other people as well. How arrogant of you. How, how, how small-minded that you would think your gospel is the way. See, we hear this all over in our culture with the pervasive language right now of, of what my truth Right? What What this does is it kind of fosters a sentiment that there is no universal truth, but instead that truth can and should be molded to each individual and in how they want it to be delivered to them. Not only should truth be individualized based on the person, that individual's truth can morph depending on how they feel or what they're going through at the time. Because of this, the, the world that we live in rejects the idea of one truth over all creation and instead believes that creation creates its own truth by itself and lives inside of it, which is exactly what Romans 1 says would happen. Humanity will claim to be wise, and yet in my translation, they'll claim to be wise and yet act a fool as they ignore God. Can, can you see this when you're looking around anywhere? Like This is a fitting description of what we see when when we look around. We see logics and philosophies and policies and ideas and ideals that that I I think they leave not just the the church, but many people around who do not have the loudest voice sitting back going, that seems crazy. And Paul says, hey, that's going to happen. Humanity left to its own devices while rejecting the truth of God. Paul says in the New Testament, things get really dark when that happens. That's what we're seeing. I'll reject the truth of God, insert my own truth, and things just get real crazy. You may hear this and say that, hey, man, that sounds like really castle-building language. Like you're trying to put like you versus them and, and, and trying to posture like the world does to see who's smarter and better. But hear me, the gospel also deals with that reality and the idea of superiority. We don't walk around with a swagger. Right? We don't walk around like we're better than the world. Because we know that without Christ and before Christ, we did the same thing as they did. Do you understand that? That's how superiority is eradicated because the gospel tells you you didn't earn anything. See, we rejected God's truth. We rejected God's law. We pretended we knew what was best at one point either. It isn't just them. It is all of humanity. But thanks be to God, if you're a follower of Christ, the beautiful gospel came in like a wrecking ball and destroyed your old views and your old hard heart and brought you new life. The one time, thank you, <laughs> there we go. The one time possibly offensive gospel came into surgery in your heart and soul. This is the good news. You or I are not better than anyone who rejects God's truth. Why? Because we once rejected God's truth ourselves. We were them. So it is not them versus us. It is the gospel that we have that we want to share lovingly to them. The grace of God grabbed us. And our hope is the grace of God would grab others as well. Now, I mention this because in a world kind of dishing out outrage over uh, truth claims and, and violently going against truth claims what we want to do there's two options when the world doesn't like truth claims we can step back and go I, I don't know if I want to do this cuz it's going to be offensive or we can do the hard-headed thing which that you know that kind of lands on, on me and I want I want us to go there together I want to double down on it in more boldness. We need a reaffirmation in our own hearts as the church together that the gospel is what we needed to be saved. It's what we still need now, and it's what the world needs. When it would be easy to be quiet and calm and, and not stir any waters at all, we, we want to double down, not to fight. But we want to see people receive the grace and mercy that we have. Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians 6 this, verse 19 through 20, Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Verse 20, for which I am an ambassador in chains, pray that I may declare it, there it is again, fearlessly as I should. Now take note, this fearlessly isn't rude, abrasive, and and terrible. We, We even went over that in the sermon last week. But take a minute to kind of feel the words that Paul gives here. He's pleading with the church, please, please pray for me. That I may be fearless in in sharing this mystery that is the gospel with the world. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly. Please will you pray? I need you. Now, why does someone pray twice to be fearless moving forward? Because in the moment they're fearful. There's a fear in the present moment of sharing the gospel. Are you following me? The Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament, even he was feeling the pressure of the outside world uh, and, and the weight against the truth that he was proclaiming. He's facing the temptation to not speak the gospel boldly at times. But since he knows it's the gospel that, that's the only thing that saves, he's praying, please, please, please pray for my heart that I will not be fearful. It's the only thing that molds hearts into becoming more like Christ. Pray for me, please, that I may be bold because there's something in me that just wants to be quiet. Prayer, pray that fear won't cause me to be silenced. I'm not sure where, where you kind of stand right now with your level of fear surrounding you and the world around you. Maybe, maybe there's not any, but maybe there's a lot. Maybe in the back of your mind right now, more than ever before, just the fear of being looked down upon or mocked or rejected or canceled. It's just kind of heavy on you where you just feel like you're always walking so lightly. That's been bothering you lately. Here's the message I want to tell you. Hey, you're not alone, right? Because the enemy wants to tell you, like, you're just weak and it's you. No, no, no. You're not alone in this. Paul, back then, felt it. Guys, can I tell you across the world right now, fellow brothers and sisters in Afghanistan feel it more than we ever will. But us feeling it right now is real too. So we're dealing with the tension here as well. Despite the fear, we want to be known as as a church and a people who are just obsessed with the gospel. That's what we want to be known for. Why? Because nothing else saves. I have no great plan, Right? You have no great plan either. There's just the gospel. Nothing else molds the hearts of men and women. Nothing else pushes back darkness like the gospel. Again, that's why it's a, po- a core part of our, our DNA because anything we do that lacks it, lacks the power to do anything relevant in the hearts of men and women. All right, so we put it everywhere. 1 Corinthians 1, 8. Long intro, huh? I got a couple hours. You got tomorrow off. Um, First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.8 is where we're going to or is I, If you're really scared about that, I'm not going to speak for just two hours. Um, we'll start in verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, I preached to you which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, and according with Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This is the word of the Lord. If we were to take a survey, right, not just in our church, but just all over the U.S. Anyone who proclaimed to be Bible-believing or a believer, which is a wide swath, maybe. And we just asked one question in the survey, just one. Who needs the gospel? Only question, who needs it? Chances are the overwhelming majority would answer it this way. Unbelievers do. Unbelievers need the gospel. And the answer to that would be correct, but maybe not in the way that you think. See, when you think of unbeliever, maybe you think of your relative or your really good friend who just like, hey man, I, cool, Jesus is your thing, but not me, right? Maybe you think of them or that, that, that neighbor who's like weird and annoying or that coworker who's brash and just makes it very clear that they're not about Jesus or the, the whole religion thing. Maybe that's what you think of. But what we need to understand is they're not the only unbelievers. Jeff Vanderstelt says it this way in Gospel Fluency. He says, we're all unbelievers. He's using hyperbole there, right? Because even we did a study in this at our MC, and there's several people who are like, I don't like that. He's, using, he's hyperbole. But he says this, when I say we're all unbelievers, I mean we still have places in our lives where we don't believe God. There are spaces where we don't trust his word and don't believe that he has accomplished in Jesus Christ. What, what he's accomplished in Jesus Christ is enough to deal with the past or what we're facing in the moment or the next. We don't believe his word is true or his work is sufficient. We don't believe. We are unbelievers. When he's saying that you and I are still unbelievers as well, he's not saying, hey, you, even if you claim Christ, that, that you, you actually don't have faith in Jesus. He isn't claiming that we're all fakes and, and, and imposters and that none of us are, are saved. He is, however, pointing out what your heart and mind feel all the time, whether we admit it or we don't, that we're tempted to maybe hide and bury this reality inside, that we struggle to believe in Jesus at times. Certain areas and certain things come And there's this tension spot where it's it's difficult to believe. Where it's difficult to believe. And sometimes we struggle to believe that he's sufficient. In in a world of chaos, in a world of so many things going around, and we're just trying to figure out, like, how do I make it through? There's times that our hearts go, are you really sufficient to get me through this? Because it feels like you're not right now. Sometimes we struggle to believe that he is good when when chaos comes and waves of suffering come our way, someone passes or something happens, it's difficult where, where there's this thing deep inside that wants to shake an angry fist at God and say, I thought you promised me better than this. It's difficult to believe that he's good sometimes or that he's gracious you can look around and see all, all the other people and, and what they're doing and how they're living and, and then walk in your tension and go, like, God, are, are you still gracious and kind? Because I'm, I'm struggling to reconcile all of this. In these moments when we are in the weeds, which, which I'm just going to throw us all under the bus, you get there whether you admit it or not. We all do. When we're struggling in our belief, in those moments, what do you need? Double down on effort? You need to hear the gospel again. You need to be reminded of it again and again and again. We need to have it once again break into the hard spots of our heart. It needs to break into that tension that we're feeling. And it needs to capture us again that Jesus has been merciful and kind. That's part of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15. There's a continual need for not yet believers, for unbelievers, for struggling believers Just flat out believers, this is continual need for every one of us to hear the gospel on repeat, because without it, you and I will wander away from it. Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love. We forget, we doubt, we struggle. Does that mean that all of us are just inferior and terrible? Like it it, it's what happens in a sinful world. Prone to wander away, prone to have this gospel amnesia. So we need to be reminded. Listen to how Paul says it. Now I remind you, brothers, that's a hint, right? Like, hey, Garrett, I need to remind you of something. Why do I say that to him? Because I think he may forget without my reminder. Let me remind you of the gospel that I preached to you that you accepted. This this is the the gospel that saved you. He's speaking here in, in a past tense. Let me remind you of the gospel that I spoke to you before that you accepted before, that you came to faith in before. But then he adds, and let me remind you of the gospel in which you now stand. So the gospel is what you heard, and it's what saved you, but it's also the thing that you're standing in now. That's present tense, and then we go forward, and the gospel by which you are being saved, that is future tense. Paul is saying the gospel isn't just the pill that saves you. It's what you need now, and it's what you need tomorrow. It's not a one-time need. It's an anchor for our soul. We needed it to get saved, we needed it to stand, or we need it now to stand firm, and we need it for our salvation to continually be worked out. Can we just say this together? Our salvation needs to be continually worked out. What's the point here? And even though part of us may, may have difficulty dealing with this, the, the point is the gospel is never done working in you. It doesn't mean you need to always get to work for the gospel, it means the gospel is never done inside of you. Jesus has more to do. He's continually working in your heart. So Paul is urging believers back then and us now to cling with all that we have, saying hold fast to the the gospel that was preached to you before, that you're standing in now and that you're going to need tomorrow. When he says hold fast, he's saying fight for it. Not like hear it when you decide to come to church once a month. Or when you dust off your Bible when something bad happened because you want to you, you just make amends. No, no, hear it all the time, fight for it, contend with it, dig into it, have it around you and in you at all times unless you believe in vain. What's that mean? It's a little weird to translate, but he's saying if the gospel isn't continually working in you, like if you think you still don't need it, if you don't want it to, to continue to, to work, if you're like, hey, I did that before, but I don't, really, I don't, I don't want to deal with my stuff anymore. Like I prayed the prayer, I'm going to heaven, it's all good. Just leave me alone. He's saying there's a chance that your belief isn't real, that you're not saved. He's not trying to slam anyone or hurt them. He's just going to be careful. That profession of faith that you say, if you don't want the gospel to continue to work, you should doubt That profession. There's a continual work that the gospel is meant to do in us. Accepting this is part of what walking out Christianity looks like. Now, just at a fundamental level, because I think in our hearts sometimes we're like, I don't like that. Neither do I. (laughs) What's the reality? The, The goal isn't just avoiding hell. It's becoming more like Jesus and walking in his kingdom fully in a broken world. Without the continual work of the gospel in you, you will not become more like your Savior. Why? Because you're not looking at him. You don't see the reality of what he's doing in you. It's been interesting as I listened to several podcasts over the last couple weeks, so many people in our network and my friends and, and mentors are all kind of preaching the exact same thing about the gospel right now. Matt Chandler said this in a sermon just, even just last week. God is not after moral conformity alone. He is after internal transformation. That's why we need the gospel over and over and over again because he's not finished. If this is true, we have to realize the progressive nature of internal transformation. You and I don't change overnight and immediately. This internal transformation also doesn't come just by trying to be good alone or spending time in church alone or voting a certain way or doing some other type of external activity. It comes over and over and over by letting the work of Jesus wash over you, the gospel message. That's what changes you from the inside out and speaks into your whole life. It washes you in a repeated mercy and grace of what Jesus has done for you, not because of you. This is why we want, again, it to be a core aspect of what we do. Because when we stop clinging to the gospel, it's the point when corporately all of us are going, I'm content, I'm fine. You good with staying here? I'm good with staying here. So the continual washing with the word is just saying, it's not trying to earn more stickers on your chart to make God not hate you. It's saying, I want to continually walk in what you've done. So over and over and over again, I'll hear it. Now the all-important question. What is the gospel? It's a truth that can change a person. It's interesting because I heard a guy say the gospel is like a fine gem. It's the same, but you can look at it at so many different angles and find new beauty as you do. John Piper says, what is the gospel in a sentence? The gospel is the news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins and rose again, eternally triumphant over all his enemies. So there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. The condemnation part's pretty good. R.C. Sproul, a theologian who's, Meant a lot to me and passed a couple of years ago. It says the good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness, of perfect obedience to God, not for his own well being, but for the well being of his people. He's done for me what I couldn't possibly do for myself, but not only has he lived that life of perfect obedience, he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the justice and righteousness of God. What are both of those theologians trying to to convey in their descriptions of the gospel? It's the same thing that Paul is fleshing out in the text that we read before from 1 Corinthians. Jesus did what we could not do on our own. It's at the core. He was perfect where we are not. He died for our sins on a Roman cross. And this wasn't just some historical event that you nod your head at. He died for our sins. He was raised on the third day, defeating death and our sin, so that anyone who believes may be saved. So they may have peace with God, so they may be adopted into the family of God by grace, meaning our salvation is not dependent on our performance anymore, or our perfection, but the perfection of Jesus. So often religion tells you that you need to do something to be saved. You need to clean up your act. You need to figure out why why you're always doing this. You need to be a better person. You need to learn a certain level of of things. You need to understand theology, right? You you need to to be able to cross off certain boxes. Or maybe it's in the back of our head that what happens so often, it's not what you need to know, but you're just going, when I look decent enough in front of him, then maybe I'll be saved because then maybe he can look at me and he can love me. When the gospel says you can never clean yourself up, You can never do that because you could never clean yourself up. This is the beauty of the gospel. He knew you couldn't clean yourself up, so God sent Jesus out of love to do the work for us that we could never do. Christ came and lived out the obedience that you and I just can't muster. He sent Christ to die for the sins that you and I fall into on accident, and then we just kind of like and we chase too. This is why the gospel literally means good news. The news of the gospel is that the pressure's off. Lay down your efforts. Breathe. So you have to let that soak in. We're programmed from a really, really early age. Live up to expectations. Cross off the boxes. Reach the milestones. Look this way. Do these things. We have an inner voice that demands of us, don't disappoint them. Your, your them may be different, but all of us have that voice. Don't, don't disappoint them. Don't let them down. And yet the gospel invades that headspace and says, can I take that from you? Can I take that burden, that weight, that desperate need to be more and do more? Can I take that from you? Because Christ has come to step into your place so that you don't have to do that anymore. This is the beauty of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Those historical events a righteous sacrifice that gets credited to those who believe in Jesus. When? When we throw the full weight of our belief into Jesus. That's why he says, repent and follow me. That's what, that's what belief looks like. It's when belief hits deep enough where you go, I don't have it all figured out, but I, I do want to follow you. This means that the job of a Christian isn't always to be more or do more. It's to fight really, really, really hard to believe oh, well, what's already been done for you. Because every turn of the world tells you what? You're not enough. You haven't done enough. Everything around you shows you your insecurities and the things that you haven't done well enough. Or or your heart tells you, hey, you you know, Jesus couldn't possibly have paid for your mess. Do you know how much stuff that you've done? Or your heart maybe just tells you that in a world with so many amenities that Jesus just isn't enough for you. That somehow money... Or power, or relationships, or fitting in, or sexual desire are somehow a better prize than Jesus is. Are somehow better than Him paying for your sin, giving you a new identity, and then it walk, inviting you to walk in the freedom of, I've finished the work for you. What does this mean? It means each and every moment for us is a really dirty, grimy, and brutal struggle to remember what Jesus has done. And make no mistake, because Paul even deals with this. Should we sin all the more since grace should abound? Right? Hey, like if we're clean, can we like, YOLO, can we just do it? No. You do not have to change yourself to earn your salvation, but the continual act of fighting ruthlessly to remember the gospel and how to apply it to how you work and seek gratification and how you treat your family and how you deal with money and how you deal with time and how you deal with service, this will change you. Do you get the difference? You do not fight to change yourself, but when you hear this message over and over, there's no other thing that it'll do besides change you. It'll come crashing into the source idols in your life and mine, like our anger and our pride and our greed and our selfishness. How? How? Anger becomes crippled when it keeps looking at Jesus. The sin that you and I carried out on purpose, Jesus paid for that with his blood. He could have lashed out. He could have destroyed. He could have said, Father, forget them. He had every reason to be angry as we rebelled against him. And yet he set his anger aside. Why? To lovingly pay for your sin. The gospel deals with your anger. Then your pride becomes eradicated as you look at the gospel. So here's the thing. You do not change yourself to be saved. So, so what does that mean? It means that your resume means nothing. You, you bring no good gift. You bring no likability. Like, hey, I, I'm good. Look, look at these gifts that I have. Like, surely he wants me on his team. He cares nothing about that. The ground is level at the, at the cross. So pride slowly should be dealt with there. Everything you've been given is a gift from God as far as grace and mercy. Selfishness gets confronted. Jesus steps down from his place in heaven. born just a man and deal with all the things that, that we didn't deal with, right? This confronts your selfishness the selfishness for our time and our help and our care for others. When you see the selfless love of Jesus. It just begins to deal with that. This is why we begin to say that there's no person, no sin, no issue that the gospel doesn't speak into loudly with hope and with pardon. If a person would just put their faith in Jesus and begin to follow him. There's four statements we want to begin to try and land the plane with today called the four Gs that I think are just helpful for us to begin applying the gospel. Some of our missional communities have gone through these at different points. Um, I, I know mine has at different points. But, but here's, a, here's a great way that I would like to continually think of uh, how to embed the gospel deep in our hearts. There, God is statements. God is great. So we don't have to be in control. This will teach you about the gospel. Do you need to control outcomes? Do you need to control people? Do you need to control your future? Do you need to control your certainty? The God who is sovereign over all things made a way, and you see it woven through the Old Testament, to send his son to come live a perfect life, to die on a Roman cross as a lamb for the slaughter for you, and has accepted you, and he says over that, and I will never let you go, and you have a hope that is eternal. The God who did all of that is in control. So to be able to understand the gospel more is to understand, I don't have to be in control of all things, because my God, my Father who's good and done so much, he's probably better at being in control than I am anyway. It just washes over your heart. God is gracious, so I don't have to fear others. Approval, affirmation being enough. So many times we, we, we do these things in our life we're just always trying to, 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 to mold or care about the way that people think of us or see us or, or just kind of where their affirmation comes towards from us, the gospel tells you. The Father looks at you even, even the you that did what happened yesterday and sees the beauty of his son. The resume of a son is is put onto you. So yeah, it's not fun when people don't like us. We're not trying to make everyone hate us. But when it happens where approval doesn't go the way that you want, the Father has approved of you and he is glorious. His approval is way better than anyone else's anyways. So you cling to that gospel. The things they said about me. The things the Father says about me. right? God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. This speaks into comfort and pleasure. Our zoning out, our vacations, our money, our gratification, our hobbies, our desires, those, those things like if I just can do this or I can get this or I can get there and have that experience, the that, that things are just going to feel okay. God is good. And Jesus' message towards us is come to me all who are heavy laden and I'll give you rest then he said, before he left, I'll send the Holy Spirit. What do the Holy Spirit give to you? Joy, peace, patience, kindness. See, it's okay to do fun things and have good gifts here on the world. But so often we're looking for those things that Jesus says, if you just come to me, I'll give them to you. And then you can go have fun on your vacation and not try and get it from there. See, God is good. So you don't have to look everywhere else to feel okay anymore. He can give you what you deeply need. Then, last one, God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. Just the need, power, success, influence, voice, whether it's a career path or the school path, or maybe it's your idea of the right family that you want to present to the world. God is gracious. He's given everything that you need already. So make your plans. Hold them with an open hand. And know the one who is powerful over all, thinks highly of you, and you you just don't have to earn anything else. What, What kind of freedom does that give you? Chase your dreams, as long as they're not crazy and sinful. Chase your dreams. And when you fall flat, it's okay. The gracious God doesn't change the way he thinks about me. God is great, God is glorious, God is good, and God is gracious. These are just some of the realities that the gospel presents us with over and over and over again. And these are the realities that change us and form us over time. So because of that, just honestly, we're all in. That's our only play. Right? There there is no other plan. There, there's nothing else for us. Right? People ask, is, is, is the is the church, the, the gospel center church, is is are they a one-trick? pony? Yeah. Do we have one play, first and 10 or fourth and 85? Do we have the same play? Yep. Do we, do we ever need to like change up stuff in order to like culturally and things like that? Do we still use that same play? Yeah. Over and over and over again, we're all in on one thing, the gospel message. That's why what we care about the most, even when we're developing other people to, to preach, is, is the gospel centrality in it. We, we want the gospel to be in our messages. We want it to be in our missional community discussions. We want it to saturate everything we do, our songs. We want it to be gospel-centered and not centered on, on how you feel or, or what your emotions are like. Because your emotions won't help you, they'll hurt you. We want to only be saturated with the gospel. We want our prayers, our kids' curriculums, our DNA, our counsel to each other in times of pain or suffering or just difficulty. We want that to be filled with the gospel, the beauty that Christ's work is sufficient for you no matter what you're going through. That's what changes us. That's what keeps us. That's the only hope that can bring hope to the lost people who are still around us. See, the gospel promises this too, that Christ will one day fix all that it's broken. It's not just that your sin gets dealt with here and now. You don't have to feel bad. One day it says he'll wipe away every tear, every hurt, every loss of life, every ache, every pain, when the heart aches for singleness or lost moments or battles of depression or disappointment or broken relationships to lost children, to lost jobs, the gospel speaks into that. There will be one point when all of that is done. And Jesus says, enough, it's over, and wipes away your tears, and King Jesus rules and reigns once again. This is the gospel message. This is our hope. And there's, there's things in us that be like, is that too far? No, that's the hope that we have. He'll put it all back together. He'll hold us now when we're still busted up and he'll put it all back together and hold us eternally. For many of you, this isn't really anything new. That's by design. The hope is that your heart would hear this again today and once again today, find just fresh moments of peace there. Maybe the hard spots of your heart would just be worked in through that. The spirit would just again show you the beauty. You are loved, you are cared for. It is finished because of what Christ has done for you. Come and rest in that again today. When we take communion, understand the body and blood of Jesus was given for you. If you've been working too hard, if you've been disconnected, if you've been trying to earn too much this week, just lay it down as you take the elements. God has given you everything that you need. Maybe for others, this message is one that you've like been around or strafed around, or maybe you've never heard it and you've never really accepted it and you've tried to be moral and and good, or just decent, or like Christian-ish, and you you just kind of try to walk this path without Jesus, my hope for you is you just lay down that effort and pick up faith. Sincerely, what joy would it be to all the striving that you try and do between you and God, if you just get to leave that alone and you get to feel loved, and you get to follow the Savior? If you've never done that, my hope is that that would be a reality for you. I'd love to pray with you today if you if you have a question about that. But really, why would you go any longer with trying to strive before God instead of receiving Christ's work for you? Man, it'd be wonderful if even just talking about our DNA, the body is reaffirmed in the truth of the gospel. Some even come to know Him. We have a church that has devoted ourselves to this one thing. Man, you guys can come back; it's the main thing. Our Pray that it continues to be that. Here's here's the ask too. This core DNA element of gospel message isn't just my deal, it's your deal. The hope is that you and I together would be in charge of saturating all things that we do. Do you understand that you have the power to change the way that you speak and what you speak to other people to whether you give them gospel or or cultural junk? It needs to be us together who saturate all that we do with this. Speak truth, speak truth, speak kindness, speak the finished work of Jesus over each other and over and over and over again. Let our hearts be transformed because God is good and he's merciful and he's kind. This is the gospel message, the first part of our DNA. It's what defines us, it's what saves us, it's what keeps us, and it's what will make sure that we stay together. What we'll see in the next two weeks is the gospel message isn't just given in a vacuum. It also drives us together. That's where gospel community comes. You cannot walk the gospel out alone. Why? Because the Bible calls that sinful and rebellion. The gospel message brings us together in gospel community, and then it sends us out on gospel mission. Those are the other two elements that we'll look at. I pray that God continues to work in us. We'll take communion today and uh, worship during the last songs. You can take it any time that you want. You don't have to be a member to take. We just ask that your faith be in Jesus. But 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 through 26 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way, Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we've spoken about the gospel today, and as you take, what are you you doing there? You are to your own heart, and we are corporately speaking the gospel back to ourselves. It is Christ and his broken body and his shed blood for me that is the only thing that I have that has saved me. My hope is that as you take, you would be encouraged in Christ's work for you. You'd see the beauty of it. If you've been working too hard or striving too hard or just ignoring the beauty of what Jesus has done, take and be reminded God is good and he is merciful and he's kind. Would you stand with me as we pray before we worship? God, I pray that you begin to work on our hearts, Lord. Here's a we feel it, Lord, There's so many temptations, so many things around us that pull on our hearts and our minds. We are too busy. We are too distracted. So I pray just even in this holy moment before we go, would you wash the gospel over our hearts? You're kind. You've been kinder than we deserve. Slow to anger and merciful. Sending the sun for every shortcoming we have. I pray that we would see that, that our hearts would rejoice in that. that the world demands that we earn. You have done all that we need on your own and given it freely to us. I pray that you'd build our hearts up in that. If we've walked far away from that truth, would you bring us in again? Would you soften us to their reality? If we've lived under another truth or another reality, Lord, will you wash your truth back over us? Would you meet us at the table today? i will pray for your strength. Lord, we just ask for your mercy. There's so many messages and so many things happening all over us that demand our attention. May we see the good news clearly today. We pray that in your name, Lord. Help us. Help us to keep the main thing the main thing. Speak truth back and forth. Teach us to be a people. who are relentlessly obsessed with your gospel because it is what is good. Holy Spirit, draw near. Will you work in our hearts today? We pray that in your name. Amen.